This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3195 for Friday the 30th of October 2020. Today's show is entitled, For Your Consideration, The Ideal Ham Radio Setup, and is part of the series podcast recommendations. It is hosted by Archer72, and is about 58 minutes long, and carries a clean flag. The summary is, Introducing a new podcast to me, with a special guest with an interest in amateur radio. Today's show is licensed under a CC by NCND license. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Hello, Hacker Public Radio. This is Archer72. I'd like to present to you a podcast with it's the 200th episode of a show that I've been listening to for a few months and I'm starting to really enjoy it. The host is Noah Chalaya. The show is entitled The Ask Noah Show. He has plenty of Linux security and IP camera talk. There's a focus on free software and related free software news. And in this one, Noah brings on a guest who describes his ham radio setup, including use of software-defined radio. If you want to skip ahead to where he just starts talking about the ham radio setup, it uh, is at 25 minutes and 42 seconds. Enjoy the show. Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's one 855 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. Delighted to be with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Before we get into it, I want to introduce two of my in-studio guests this evening. Uh, towards the end of the year, around the month of October, we do something called the Alta Speed Sprint. We bring in the people that work from us around uh, and, and, and come in and hang out. And so in the studio with me, Simon Quigley, uh, Kenny Schmidt, welcome to the program, guys. Hey, good to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to be here. So we are uh, we're working on um, integrating the digital world and trying to understand how we as an IT company uh, properly and efficiently respond to things like COVID. And so that's um, that's what we're doing here in town. So you guys are going to join and hang out and and uh, participate in the community discussion tonight, and we'll tell you more about the thing digital campaign that Alta Speed's working on as show rolls on. 
Again, you can be a part of the program uh, by joining us by phone, 855-450-NOTES, 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to have you join the program. Um, We're going to start off the program going forward with feedback. In the feedback, Tom writes in and says, Hey, Noah, our family has decided to get some sort of home security cameras for the home. I'm looking to see if there's a good option for home security cameras that's safe and possibly self-hosted, or is it worth the monitoring cost? If we went with cameras only, I'm interested in the Eufy Cam 2 as it just uses an SD card in the base. Do you have any advice? It would be awesome. Thanks, Tom. So, Kenny, I'll start with you. You're, you have a home user, and he approaches you in the field and says, hey, I'm looking for a, uh, a camera system. I don't want to break the budget. like to keep it in a few hundred bucks. What are you recommending to him? Man, that's a tie-up. I think for simplicity and, and cost-effectiveness, I would go with something like the Unify uh, setup that they have. Um, they have a really great line of uh, bullet cameras and even some dome cameras that are really good quality. Um, but if you're willing to spend a little bit more and get a, a really nice set of cameras, I'd go with the access all the way. Cause they're just going to last a little bit longer and the build quality on them is just incredible. Yeah. We've had really good luck with access. And the, you know, the other thing is he talks about using an SD card and immediately what comes to mind is this is again, the kind of features that you're going to get with the higher end cameras. So access, yeah. for example, they have not only the built-in SD recording uh, function, but they have the ability to upload that recording through FTP or, or, or other methods right from the camera, even without purchasing a, a Synology uh, disk station to use yeah. as an NVR. Then on top of that, the other thing that's really great about it is they have built-in motion detection, which is pretty nice. Um, yeah, and they also support like ridiculously large SD cards. I think uh, one we tested with was like 500 gigabytes or something like that. So they can record for an incredible amount of time on just the SD card alone. That's that's fantastic. Um, one other option we'll throw out there is the Dahoo. I've mentioned these a few times in the past. Essentially, we did a whole episode on IP security cameras. You can go back and check that out. But the 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 takeaway from it was that a lot of Chinese manufacturers have some very questionable security practices. And, uh, in fact, there are open source projects that are specifically tailored towards defeating the security built into uh, some of these uh, Chinese brand cameras. And so I, I came across Tahua, and while there isn't a, uh, a direct, I can't find, I'm, I'm sure that it's safe, I'm sure that it's secure, you can for sure trust it, I wouldn't go that far, but I can't find any evidence um, that people have found problems with it. Additionally, there are about $56.00. Um, you can buy a new one on eBay for about fifty for about fifty seven dollars, and so I'll have a link for you. It's a four megapixel HD IPC HDW fourteen three ITI dash S four. How's that for a model number? It does support the new H two six five codec, which is the new uh, which is a new video codec that's a little bit more efficient, provides a little bit better image quality, uh, and so for sixty dollars, this is uh, this has been a really great camera. The thing I like about Tahua is so you mentioned unify and they were a great choice before they went to the protect line Uh, now though with the protect line you're not able to use those cameras with any other series of nvr so it's a great way to go if you know for sure that your needs are never going to exhaust the unify lineup and you can stay within that protect brand Uh, once you start to go above that though if you ever want to do more you're closed because you can't use those protect cams my understanding with other nvrs whereas you could use the old unify cameras um, the Tua would allow you, I don't know that there's a way to record on an SD card. In fact, I don't think there, that, that there is. Um, so you're going to have to pair that with some sort of recording solution. Um, 
we've worked with things like ZoneMinder, and they work okay if you're willing to put in the time to redo the UI. It's going to give you a pretty decent experience. But right out of the box, man, enough good things cannot be said about Synology uh, Surveillance Station. It's incredible, yeah. And right out of the UI, I mean, you're going to just you're going to pull the box out, you're going to click install, and it's just going to work. So um, hopefully that helps you out, Tom. If it doesn't, please email us back or give us a call when we're live on the air, and we'd love to help you uh, continue down that that um, that path. We move the feedback to the beginning of the week because we're going to be making some changes as we go on um, on episode 201 on. And, and one of the things I want to do is refocus the show back to its roots about helping people and serving the community well. Um, we've gotten away from that partly because of the amount of time that I have to put into prepping things like the feedback segment and, and so on and so forth. But if you have questions that you've asked in the past, we have a new system for uh, collecting feedback and organizing feedback and presenting it. So we invite you to send those in at live at asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is Fluffy Chat. It is a matrix client. Now, let me tell you something. I, I got a, a few pieces of, of, of feedback this week and half of them are positive and half of them are negative. Half the people are saying, I can't believe the onboarding process of Matrix. This is absolutely fantastic. There was a guy in our chat room uh, that, uh, that, that went off uh, and, 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 and wrote this big blurb about that he had been using Element on his phone for a while and he wanted to transition to the desktop experience and it just popped up a QR code. He took the picture and Bob's your uncle. Everything was signed in. All, all his keys were synced. And he goes, I just never had an experience that smooth. And then there are other people out there that have said, I don't know that there's, you know, this encryption key thing and my end to end thing. And I, I lost this and I lost that. The reality is, if you read all of the directions when you're signing up on Element, it's not a problem. It tells you, hey, we're going to create an encryption key. This is the thing that's going to protect all your information. So you have your account password and then you have your encryption key. Those two things need to be kept uh, secure or and you have to know what they are so that you can recover your encryption keys and read your encrypted messages. If you don't do that, you're not going to be able to read encrypted messages. Hello. But that confuses people and then they uh, they become frustrated. Fluffy Chat is interesting because it is a messenger that's really based more on the lines of a Telegram or a Signal style messenger. So the messages come in bubbles, read receipts are represented by check marks, those kinds of things. And it offers an alternative to the Element client, which is kind of a full featured client to ex to 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 showcase the Matrix protocol. Where I kind of fell in love with Fluffy Chat, even if I'm not a fan of the name of the program or the or the, or the icon is that it looks and functions almost identically to Telegram. Now, part of the full disclosure, part of the reason I went away from Telegram to begin with is because I had 14-some-thousand unread chats, and I just couldn't keep up because there's no way to group or to organize them. And that's precisely what I do like about Matrix. But if you're one of those people that says, listen, I don't want complicated UIs, I just want a messenger, and I just want to use it, Fluffy Chat's a great way to go. Now, here's an interesting aside. When I wanted to test Fluffy Chat, I downloaded it off the App Store. Have either of you installed it? Uh, I tried it when you were. I tried it on your device, but I had never downloaded it on my personal device. Any of the Matrix? You guys speak up if, if anybody in there has tried it. I'd be interested <clears throat> in hearing your experience of Fluffy Chat. But I, 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 I downloaded it and I open up Fluffy Chat, and the first thing it says to me is. Pick a username. Okay, I can do that. I pick a username, and it says pick a password. I pick a password. The next thing I know, I'm signed into Fluffy Chat, and I ha I can. And so I think to myself, well, let me see if I can send a message. So I send a message to Colonel Linux colon LinuxDelta.com. Boom, sends a message. I thought, and that was really fantastic. How did that happen? First of all, what server am I even on? Go back through the process a second time. What I found was 
that the, the, the folks who wrote Fluffy Chat have their own matrix instance. And by default, as you might expect, it registers an account on their matrix instance. Of course, you can click on change home server and register on your own. But what's really where, where that really clicked for me was one group of people said, here's the way that we should approach messaging. And we're going to do it the same way that Slack and IRC and all of the and Discord and all these other places have done it. And indeed, that is what you get when you download the element client. But now we're seeing a time in where people have looked and said, I want a messenger like iMessage or Telegram or Signal. And a, a totally different group of people took the exact same protocol and said, we're going to present that information to the user in a different way. And I, I've, I've gotten to the point now where I, if there's a better way to build a community, somebody tell me what it is. But you have to be prepared to answer questions like, well, what do we do when Matrix or when, when Discord or Facebook or whatever the platform is? says to themselves, we don't want you on our platform. Or if, like we covered in a story last week, one of these platforms can't get along with one of the governments, and so an entire country can't participate in the community. This doesn't work for me. And so this is why I've kind of doubled down on on Matrix and Element, because if you look at, look at a five-year roadmap, look at a 10-year roadmap, where is communication going to be? Email has survived 25 years, not because the people who invented email were super smart, I mean, they were, but not, that's not why it succeeded. It succeeded primarily because it's such an open standard that a bunch of people, it's the way that a lot of people can communicate, and no other platform has that quite the way that Matrix does. And so if I were Slack, if I were Microsoft Teams, I'd figure out a way to run Matrix in the back end, let that do, let that do all the heavy lifting, and then put your whatever your front-end client, whatever you want to brand it, fine, but that way you're able to talk to everybody else. One interesting point as well that you mentioned is that email, I mean, it's lasted however long because it's an open protocol. But another thing to mention is that with Telegram and with all these other services, there is one server instance. So if the server goes down mm. for any reason, then you are stuck with Telegram is down. There is no email is down. There could be Gmail is down. There could be Hotmail is down, whatever there are these days. There could be a specific service that's down. But with Matrix, it, it, it's really, it's, it's the same concept. It's a specific server can be down. And, and really, when you're looking at scaling this up, it's, it really makes a lot of sense to distribute it to a couple of different servers rather than just having one centralized server, yeah. especially when you're, when you're looking at running a business or when you're looking at running something that needs to be reliable. You don't want to have to rely on somebody else to maintain your server. You know, you're right about that. So consider this, right? We just signed up for a hosted instance of, of, of Matrix. And the reason we did that is we wanted to see what does, a, what does, the, best, what does the best experience on Element look like um, directly run from the people who created it. And we wanted to compare that to our community-hosted instance and see what the difference was. Now, uh, spoiler alert, I'll be surprised. To t I'm happy to tell you that there really isn't much of a difference. The only difference is in some of the polish because they obviously smooth the onboarding process because they know what the server is going to be ahead of time. But I digress. If somebody finds a different way to build a community, you write into the show at live at asknoshow.com. Tell me what that is, and we will look into that. But right now, what I'm seeing is what exactly what you just said. When Fluffy Chat sets up a server on, on their instance, and, and they're doing a thing, and we have a community instance at linuxdelta.com, and anybody can join there and host their account there, and people are doing this. They come in, they join the account, they join one of the rooms, and we're expanding the rooms to, in, to include all sorts of different topics. Um, so you can just click on that Explore Rooms button, look at all the different rooms that are there. But 
what people are doing is they're coming in and then they're saying, how do I set up my own synapse? And of course, we're happy to help people do that because as you correctly pointed out, the more synapses that are online, the more robust and reliable Matrix as an infrastructure becomes. Each room is copied to each server uh, that has users that host it. And so when somebody spent, if, if you spin up Kenny.me and you spin up Simon.me and those are synapses and you join the Geek Lab, for example, uh, now that Geek Lab is stored on not one, not two, but three different servers. And so we have redundancy. And even if Linux Delta went away, we could just change the address to uh, Kenny.me and it would be Geek Lab uh, colon Kenny.me and that, that room could live on. So it decentralizes communication. And it and it and it, if I'm going to build if if I'm going to tell people, hey, here's a platform that I think you should invest in and spend time and create an account, then it seems to me that Matrix is the best place to do that because every time we make a change, we lose people, right? People don't want to do that, and I care about I care about keeping those connections. There are people that I talk to on Telegram that I, I just I, I don't talk to now that they're not on there. So I, I I invite you to if you haven't if you haven't been following along or if it doesn't seem like it was something that was that was interesting to you before. I highly suggest you take a look at Matrix and see what it's about and how it how it works because once you get into it, it's been really fun. And Simon, you've had an opportunity to look at it from the other side, from the developer standpoint, and write some stuff. How has that been working with it? So there's one. It's on the one aspect. Um, there, I mean, there's a difference between being able to work with open source software that is just happens to be open source. And there, it's, a, it's a difference between that and working with something that's very well architected. And I, the more I look into Matrix, the, the more impressed I get with how well is architected, with how well they thought things out, um, especially given that they have many different architectural planning documents that show exactly what kind of thought went behind it. Um, so I, I think that that especially makes it easier to work with from a developer, perspe- per, um, developer perspective. And I found at least working with it myself, I've had a lot of success given that open documentation and given that there's a community of people who have tried it in many different instances. Um, and they have had positive, you know, positive results. Um, Once and, people go to it, they don't go back. Right, exactly. So I, I think that deve- definitely from a developer's perspective, um, it really, Matrix is a good solution. Um, you know, if you look at if you compare it to something like Telegram, the the server again it's open, it's closed source, and the client is open source. So right. that's that's definitely one of the advantages of using something like Telegram. And of course, there are many different there are many different platforms we can discuss. Matrix, I think it's unique in that it's an open, um, distributed, well architected program, and it's really it's really fun to work with, in my opinion. Our gadget of the week this week is the is a phone from Yealink. It's the SIP T442S. Now, at some point, we dream of a future at AltaSpeed where we're going to have our phones tied directly into Matrix because Matrix, the protocol, will support tying to SIP extensions or support SIP. And so the idea is we'll log into one piece of software and we'll have our, our chat software, our support software, everything will run through Matrix. Um, but for now, until that, until all of those integrations have been made, we're still stuck with using physical phones. And if you're using any of the any of the number of different Asterix clones out there, um, it doesn't really matter which phone you use as long as it's a SIP phone. The problem is all of the troubleshooting and programming is on you, um, unless you pay for extra features or go with a system 
that has integration into something like Asterix now with, you know, like Sangoma. Um, another way that you can go, though, is using a software like 3CX. 3CX is not open source software, but it is free and it will run on a on a basic Linux server. Now, the way they do licensing is a little weird. Um, you get four what they call simultaneous calls or SC for free and any more than that you have to pay for. And so if you wanted eight simultaneous calls, in other words, you wanted to have eight people on their phones at the same time, uh, you'd have to pay for you'd have to pay for one of their licenses. And it does get kind of expensive. But for just getting started, for just getting off the ground, 3CX is a great way to go. And things like the Yaling SIP T42S mean that all you have to do is take the MAC address off that phone, put it into your 3CX extension, and, re- and press and hold the OK button on the phone and restart it. So you can literally just ship phones to your clients. You can ship phones to your employees. Wherever it is that, that, that you need to have access to your SIP IPPBX system, you can do that uh, with with 3CX and uh, and and the Yaylink phones. Um, when I first bought Yaylink or was first suggested uh, to take a look at them, I actually wrote them off because they seemed like a budget brand. Um, but after owning a few of them now for a little bit and having used them at AltaSpeed day in day out, I have to admit uh, they they are they are definitely a, a good quality phone. So if you're looking for an easier way to manage your PBX, I highly suggest you take a look at 3CX and the Yealink SIP T42S. And if you're looking for a hosted solution, obviously our friends over at Fox Telesis, uh, we get people from the community all the time saying that they have nothing but a good experience with them. So if you don't want to have the ha- if you want to self-host it yourself, just go download the ISO and self-host it um, on a on on a on a company like Vulture or something that lets you upload your own ISOs. Um, but if you don't want to mess with it at all, then give Fox Telesis a call and have them do it for you. In the news this week, Lenovo has announced a global expansion of their Linux portfolio, extending its certification program that it was announced back in June to include PCs pre-installed with Canonical's Ubuntu LTS. Now, this is uh, this is exciting because what you you saw this early on um, in in the in the late 2000s companies kind of springing up trying to play with supporting Linux. And it's only been in the last maybe three, four, five years that companies have really buckled down. And part of that is going to be a theme throughout this episode and going on past episode 200, which is the direction that the industry is going. Now, I have to tell you, uh, at, 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 at both at AltaSpeed Technologies and on, uh, on Ask Noah, I, I try to keep my finger on the pulse of what the technology is is doing and what what the industry is doing, and the reality is that Linux is has never been more important because it is the platform on which everything else in the world is running on. And I have to be honest with you, I'm convinced that the Linux desktop is the right choice for me because I've I've said this from day one and I continue to say this. I think this is still true. The choice of an operating system is simply choosing what type of problems you want to solve. Uh, if you want to choose to solve the problems, they can be solved under Windows 10. If you want to ser- solve certain problems, they can be solved under Mac OS, and you'll be able to get your workflow done on either of those two operating systems. I work with companies that have people working on Android, for crying out loud. But I think, for me personally, the Linux desktop is the right way to go. But I'm convinced that in the next 5 to 10 years, it's not going to matter what desktop you choose because the vast majority of services are going to re- that you're going to be required to interact with are going to be managed services provided by large or small companies. And I'm convinced that Linux is more important than ever because it's, up, it's what's powering all of this. And I don't think this is bad news. I think this is good news. I think we as a community are more prepped than we've ever been to tackle things like this. There are more self-hosted platforms out there. 
And most of them, in my personal opinion, blow the pants off their proprietary solutions, and they also are a fraction of the cost. But what that means is there are literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of jobs out there building this stuff, maintaining this stuff, supporting this stuff, troubleshooting, understanding. And it's much easier to do all of that from a Linux machine. And you guys dealt with this just in the field today. You're troubleshooting a web server today. And first thing you told me is, I just, I got to get to a Linux box. At the time, you guys didn't have a Linux laptop next to you. Hey, if I'm going to troubleshoot this thing, I need to get to a Linux box. And that is shared by most system administrators and developers if they're working on a Linux ecosystem and they're working on a Linux infrastructure. And so what Lenovo is doing here, the reason that Lenovo is willing to extend their lineup to cover 14 additional uh, machines is because, excuse me, 13 additional machines is because they know that the future of building and maintaining this technology is going to be on Linux in one form or the other. And they, at the end of the day, Lenovo just wants to sell laptops. They don't care who to or why. They just want to sell laptops. And so what the industry has told them is that end users are going to continue to use Microsoft Windows because Microsoft has made it a very smooth experience for end users uh, to transition into Windows 10. And we've seen that out in the field, that Microsoft is, is working their tail off to make it so when you... Man, if you sign up for an Office 365 uh, subscription, I promise you, you know that Microsoft Teams is available. You know I mean? I mean, you can't log into the desktop without finding out that Microsoft Teams is available and ready for you to use and offer a, a guide walkthrough. And by golly, if you needed help picking a browser, they full screen that Microsoft Edge right all over your computer just so you knew that Microsoft Edge was an option for you in case you weren't aware of how great of an option Microsoft Edge was, right? This is what Microsoft is doing. Yes, speak, speak up. This, this is what Microsoft... I got to interrupt. Hey, Noah, there's a new version of Edge. There is. Yeah, I just got to tell you. Like, yeah, it came you know, up and it took Microsoft over my whole screen. Yeah, and it yeah. came over my whole screen to come. <laughs> so what, what Lenovo is doing here is responding to the fact that they, they know that the developer market and the system administration market for people that have to do these things have to have computers to work on. And they don't have time. We don't have time. We're a company of seven people, and we don't have time to go through and reinstall the operating system on our laptop because we just need our laptop to work. So the fact that I can go to a company, Lenovo.com, and just buy a Linux computer, they're not the first. Dell has done this before them, System76 before that. Companies have been doing this, but now if you want to play in the PC space, the, the big manufacturers, and I... I can't tell you I, – I, I can't cite the source because I was specifically asked not to, but I have it on, on, on good authority that the, the fine folks over at HP use Linux in-house like crazy. They're just not allowed to talk about it. And um, what that tells me is that the industry is clicking, taking a clear direction, and as the Ask Noah Show, we want to be a part of covering that and continuing to bring industry experts in – that that can not only answer questions, but also can provide insight into where the industry is going and what they're doing. Container technology, virtualization, these kinds of things are are sweeping through the industry, and Linux is at the heart of all of it. And so um, I am I couldn't be happier for Lenovo that they're making this announcement, particularly because my X1 Carbon 6 Gen has been hands down the best laptop I've ever owned in my entire life, bar none boot the thing up, go into the UEFI, tell it that it's a Linux machine, which is amazing all on its own. And from that point on, you would swear that Lenovo's engineers built that computer around a perfect Linux box. 
and it, and it, and that experience was so incredible that when uh, one of our clients asked us to replace one of their laptops, I said, I you know if you want a mission critical reliable laptop, I'd highly look at the ThinkPad. And so they got we we got a seventh gen, and of course I have one that I'm going to do a review on because I have to know how well it works with Linux, right? Um, this is exciting news, and I think I think where this takes us or the direction that we're going to go with this moving forward is pay attention to what these manufacturers are doing because they're responding to industry. And so there are people all the time that ask me, how do I get hired? What can I do to put myself into a position to get hired? And how do I move my career forward? What do I take as my next step? Take the fact that Lenovo is recentering a a, a portion of their company on providing this market as a sign that this is the direction technology is going. It doesn't matter if you're on Apple. It doesn't matter if you're on Microsoft. At the end of the day, you're using their services and their services all run in Linux. Now, before we go any further, I have to welcome in my best friend uh, for for years. Uh, we talk a lot about ham radio on this program. And uh, we I hang out on two meters and I do the Monday Night Net when I'm here. But I just don't have the time to do uh, all the fun things uh, that you can do with ham radio. But my best friend does. He spends a lot of time hanging out on all forms of ham radio. And uh, he's doing it all on Linux. His name is Alex, better known as KC0REL in the ham radio community. He joins us as a guest on the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Alex, welcome into the program. Well, hello there. Hey, thanks for taking the time to be here. So I, I guess let's start with this, Alex. You you recently got married. You bought a house with your wife. You move in and you say to yourself, I want to set up the ham shack. What were your goals uh, when you when you first started setting up? What were you trying to accomplish? Sure. So we live in an HOA restricted neighborhood, uh, which uh, they do allow outside antennas, but we didn't want to cause much of a stir. So I wanted a stealthy operating uh, environment. I wanted to get on HF, uh, specifically SSB, CW, and anything 40 meters, 20 meters and below. Um, I can't quite do 80. I can I can tune up on it and I can get out, but it's not very reliable, um, as well as having a reliable two meter shack. And uh, the ability to operate the shack remotely when I'm when I'm not in the room, even across the house or or across the world. What kind of HF antenna do you have, and how well uh, do you find it performs? Sure. So when we first moved in there, I looked at a bunch of different options. I looked at uh, commercial options. I looked at building. I looked at uh, anything from a Yagi all the way down to a dipole, and I I settled on a dipole. So I actually ended up buying some electric fence wire. It's just aluminum extruded wire from a local ranch store and went out into my garage, measured out the lengths, built myself a fan dipole. So it has elements on 40, which is trap loaded, a 20 meter full length element and a six meter full length element, because at the time I thought I'd be a lot more active on six meters and that is absolutely dead in my area. So I don't actually use the six meters. But it tunes on 80. It'll tune on 160, uh, but I'm not putting out very much power at all. It's resonant on 40. It's resonant on 20. It'll tune on 17 meters, 10 meters, uh, and a couple other bands. For VHF, I've got a 2-meter radio, which has a SMA mount antenna drilled into a uh, Goodwill cookie sheet that's just literally sitting in the attic on top of the insulation, and it works great. I can hit repeaters 60, 70, 80 miles away, no problem. You mentioned that you have set your station up to work remotely. Now, this is interesting because your day job doesn't necessarily permit you to be in the same place all the time, and so you want the ability to practice your hobby from everywhere. How did you set this up? 
Sure. So it actually it started out much simpler than that. Uh, my I originally started working with FT8, uh, which is a sound card mode, a digital mode on the computer, where you click a button and your and your computer controls the radio to make the contact. And I would find that I had to walk across the house to use the restroom, to cook, to uh, put laundry in the dryer, whatever, to do my household chores. And that I would come back to the computer and see that, say, Africa had been on five minutes ago and I had just missed a chance to make a contact with the last continent oh, that I need man. to make worked all continents or that a, a wanted call sign, you know, somebody that I, yeah. I was friends with in the past or somebody who's a radio host like you was online or something and that I just missed you or whatever five minutes ago. And I was so disappointed with that. So I, I originally set up my, my computer upstairs that runs the ham shack mm-hmm. with a VNC client or VNC server. And then I, I had a VNC client on my cell phone and my laptop and I would log in and just control it through VNC. Sure. And that got, got me thinking that I could do that across the world or, or wherever. And I, I do occasionally do that. The problem is I don't want to leave the radio on 24 seven and, and running so that my next, my next issue to tackle is working on a way to remotely turn the radio on and off or just biting the bullet and saying, I don't care and leaving the radio on. It's not like it's going to burn up or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I've recently set up a VM box. So now I have different virtual machines running and and another project that will eventually happen is getting away from VNC viewer and just virtualizing the entire Hamshack computer. And when I'm in the physical Hamshack using the computer that's there just as a dummy terminal and then being able to access that through my VN, uh, through my, um, my VPN and, and connecting into that securely. Now, have you played with different remote protocols at all, or is it just kind of been the, the protocol is really just there to get you access to the machine? So VNC does the job. Why bother? Why bother experimenting? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I just want to be able to click buttons on the screen and let the computer handle the rest of it. The, I, the issue I've seen with other remote protocol things is they want to remote things like they want the push to talk to be on your phone and that seems to be overly complicated to me whereas if, if everything's already being handled well by the computer locally in the shack why not just have access to that computer and let that happen yeah if you know what i mean yeah absolutely no that makes perfect sense so you started with fta you've you've alluded to that this may have started to get become more complicated or more robust what modes uh, do you typically spend operating I almost exclusively operate FT8. Every once in a while, I'll do FT4. Um, I like the ability to do free messages that comes up with uh, JS8 call, but I haven't had a chance to get that set up simply because life has been kind of hectic with COVID uh, going on and stuff like that. But uh, that that is one of my next ventures. And then I want to I, I have a small QRP radio called a DSB. It's a home built kit where you get a box full of parts and you build this radio. And that is going to be set up. I have to build another band module for it to get it on the right frequency because it's a crystal controlled radio. But that is going to be set up as a whisper beacon, um, whispers weak signal propagation reporter. And essentially what it does is puts out anywhere between you know five watts and below down to the milliwatts level. Uh, just on a constant, uh, very, very, very low noise floor uh, mode that can be decoded, you know, uh, way below the noise floor. And you can set up a, uh, basically use PSK Reporter, or they have this this version of that called WhisperNet, and see where your signal is being heard all around the world, even on milliwatts of power. Wow, that's really cool. And and is this uh, is this this is a radio that you built? 
Yep, yeah, that's actually one of my hobbies has been throwing a, a small soldering iron in my bag and ordering these kits off of QRP guys or QRP labs or any of the, the numerous websites out there and building little radios when I'm on the road. Because why not? I mean, they're small, they're powered off of anything from a 9-volt battery all the way up to you can power them off of a, a regular Hamshack power supply. And a dipole made of speaker wire that folds up into a, a very compact package. The whole thing takes up maybe the size of a shoebox at the most. Uh, usually it's a whole lot less than that. And you can throw it in your bag and operate HF from anywhere in the world. So you've kind of explained what a DSB radio is, and you've kind of explained why you chose to engage in the, in the process of building it. But who is that process right for? If I don't have any electrical knowledge, maybe I've never soldered anything before, is that something that should be daunting? Is it something that's easy to pick up? Who can build a radio from scratch? Well, absolutely. There's there's kits that range anywhere from I've never touched a soldering iron all the way up to uh, the next kit I'm going to buy is what's called an MCHF, which has surface mount components, which obviously is a lot more difficult than through-hole components. But no, mo- most of the kits out there are very, very simple all the surface mount stuff is already done at the factory if there is any surface mount. And it's follow color-coded picture directions that a three-year-old could follow. In fact, the, the, the first radio that I built is the QRP Lab CW transceiver, the QCX. And that was designed for the Youth on the Air Conference, which is uh, children 16 and younger learning about ham radio as a kit that they could build with zero soldering experience. We'll have links for you for all of these kits, everything he's mentioning in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Alex, when you connect a radio to a computer, uh, most of the people that are listening to this show are very familiar with the computer side. They might be introduced to the radio side. What things do they need? Can you just go on the Internet, purchase a radio that has a USB plug, plug it into the computer and it works? What kind of software do you use? How does that work? Oh geez, you could even you could even not have a physical radio. There are web SDR stations that you can uh, operate for free, or during contests you can rent out and operate a mega station with you know a ten element Yagi on every band and and radios that do five hundred watts through an amp or even more. And all you need is a call sign and a computer and a credit card. Um, <laughs> all the way down to you could you could have the the latest FT1000D model that's a $5,000 radio that, yes, is its own USB interface that you plug right into your computer. And everything you do on the radio, you can do on the computer from turning the volume up and down, turning the gain up and down, whatever. You do that through through either a graphical interface or a keystroke. All the way down to, I have a tube radio from the 1970s, and as long as you can get audio to and from the radio and key the radio somehow with the computer, you can operate digi-modes with your computer with that. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. That's awesome. So let's dig into SDR a little bit. SDR is software-defined radio. Essentially, the idea is that we can't really we can't really emulate the transmitter or the receiver, so that part has to be real. But... The actual controlling, the tuning, the interpretation, the audio processing, all of those things we can offload to the computer and do that in software and and then just keep the transmitter or the receiver uh, the actual physical component that we use to, to, to transmit or receive. Now, the transmitters are obviously a little bit more pricey, so those obviously are going to require a little bit of knowledge, but the receivers anybody can purchase for just a couple of bucks off of Amazon, eBay, a number of different places, and it allows you to receive radio waves through this SDR adapter into your computer. So, Alex, what was your first experience with SDR? How did it come about? How did you get it set up? What 
SDR receiver, I assume it was a receiver that you used, and what software are you using? Sure. So this began probably five or ten years ago. I saw on uh, on Amazon a RTL SDR digital TV box that was, I think it was 12 or $13 at the time, and I bought it with the intention of, oh, cool, I can watch TV on my laptop, not knowing at all the ham radio implications of it and what you could do with it. Come to find out that these, these devices are so cheap and so ubiquitous, you can find them anywhere, that people have started using them, and they have very sensitive receivers in them, that you can use them for anything from watching TV, what they're designed for, all the way up to uh, receiving slow-scan TV from the International Space Station or weather satellite images or monitoring your local repeater or using an upconverter monitoring HF. So the, the project that I've most recently done, there's two of them. The first one is I have a... SDR plugged into a Raspberry Pi, which will eventually be virtualized. The only reason it's on a Raspberry Pi right now is because I wanted the antenna as high as possible, and it's in my upstairs bedroom, um, which monitors the uh, aircraft flying overhead and publish, publishes that data to a flight tracking website. You can you can download ready-made packages for all the popular ones. And what's cool about it is I have my own independent data where I can see what airplanes are flying over my head, even the ones that are restricted to the general public. So if it's putting out a signal saying who it is, I can pick it up. If it's a military airplane, if it's a, you know, a private jet that paid for the blocking service or whatever, I can see that, whereas somebody who, who doesn't have this service can't. And the other system that I just recently set up is a, um, it's off of GitHub, and it's called uh, Trunk Recorder, where I, I've been a scanner enthusiast for the longest time. I've, I've always been interested in listening to police, fire, ambulance in my local area, as well as amateur radio and that kind of stuff. And I got tired of, if I didn't grab the scanner, having to turn around, drive back home, grab the scanner, and then leave again if something was going on. So I found this project through a Google search. It uses GNU Radio as the backbone and basically emulates all the functions of your trunked scanner, which is, you know, a five $600 scanner, and does it all on the computer using one or more SDRs, depending on which, which SDR you have. So the cheaper ones have relatively narrow bandwidth and relatively low uh, number of samples per second which is the limiting factor on how, how much data you can monitor. So, I mean, you have about 2.4 megahertz of bandwidth that you can listen to on this radio. So anywhere between uh, 1.2 megahertz below and above the center frequency, the, the radio can listen to that entire spectrum at the same time. The more expensive ones are up to 61 megahertz of bandwidth, but those are in the hundreds of dollars range that you can monitor at the same time. And depending on how many different tri signals you're trying to pull out of that, you have to sample more to get... Uh, usable data out of it. So with, with my SDR, uh, which is, again, a, an RTL SDR, which is 15 to $20 on Amazon, I can monitor roughly four or five transmissions in that bandwidth, which is good enough for me to monitor my entire uh, trunked radio system in the, in the local area, which covers police, fire, ambulance, as well as public utilities and other things, multiple different calls at the same time on only three SDRs. That's fantastic. And you virtualize this whole thing. 
Correct. Yeah, it's running on a VM. It's running on an Ubuntu VM that uh, it actually we just set this up the other day. It'll pull the signal in. It records everything, including um, talk groups that don't get broadcast online, like uh, if the data talk group where you're hearing background checks and people's names and stuff. The tactical talk groups that aren't restricted, but the police department has requested that they don't play out. I can still hear them, but there are certain websites that won't play them. Um, and it broadcasts it to openmegahertz.com and to Broadcastify, which is the radio reference version of that, and runs a feed to both of those. It archives them on my computer, and then I have every morning at 3 a.m. It, it, for reasons of the software records in WAV, but it puts it out as a, an MP4 file, I think, to the Internet. I delete the WAV file because I have no need for two audio recordings of the same thing. I've, mm. I've automated that. And then I have it R-Sync to my NAS drive uh, at the end of the night so that um, all the calls are archived basically in perpetuity. Let me, let me ask you this. You, you you talk a little bit about these different sites that, that you can stream this audio to. And you mentioned two of them, Open Megahertz and Radio Reference. Um, is there either or either one of those sites do you like better than the other in terms of either functionality or in terms of they try to put their own twist on things and control things. And this other site over here just kind of lets you do whatever. Have you noticed any of those? Yep. Yeah, actually. So what I was talking about with uh, one site blocking certain talk groups and stuff, that is that is radio reference. There's nothing wrong with them. They're a great site and they're uh, by far much more ubiquitous. You can find feeds in almost every city of police, fire and ambulance. They do take the tactical talk groups and the talk groups that only deal with relaying private information like driver's license and numbers and stuff off the air, which, okay, that's cool. But there are definitely some uh, some times that you want to listen to that stuff even as joe citizen so open megahertz is uh, essentially the one that does not block that it puts out whatever talk groups i feed to it and puts them right on the air you mentioned the rtl sdr and i've, I've looked this up it uh, it's about 25 bucks on amazon excellent reviews, 681 reviews all four and a half stars so this is this is a really cool device looks like it works everything from 500 kilohertz to 1.7 gigahertz so i can see what you're saying as far as a wide range of things to receive are these the dongles that you're using and if so do you have one per uh do you need one per trunk group that you're listening to or one per frequency that you're listening to or does one act like the scanner portion so generally you need an array of them because their bandwidth is only 2.4 megahertz so i I have everything from 856 megahertz to uh 865 megahertz scanning and one SDR wouldn't be enough to cover that entire bandwidth so I have an array of SDRs to cover that entire frequency spectrum uh, there is on the trunk reporter github there's a link to a site where you can plug in all the frequencies you need to monitor and the bandwidth of your specific SDR and it'll tell you how many you need to reliably uh, record that but if you're just recording one frequency or even if you're recording a group of frequencies within that 2.4 megahertz bandwidth you can just use one SDR I want to talk about a, a second piece of software. This, anybody who's been in radio for more than five minutes has probably heard of, and it's called Chirp. It is a, a fantastic piece of software that can program pretty much every radio known to men. Now, to get, take you back a little bit, 10 years ago, when you would purchase a radio, it would show up and you would do the ham radio mantra, which is pull it out of the box and see if you can get it to work. If you can, then you just go ahead and throw the manual away. If you couldn't get it to work, then you would skim the very brief amount that you had to to get the radio to programmed and then you would work it um, these days you can just download chirp and and use your computer which gives you a much more robust interface to program the radios as well as the ability to program things that wouldn't be functional uh, to program from a front from a front keypad like dmr and so on and so forth alex what are you using chirp for and how have you found it to be beneficial 
Sure. So actually, there therein is a, a project that I discovered probably, yeah, about two, three months ago, I discovered Chirp. I mean, I'd heard about it, but uh, I I was of the old school. So I'm just going to punch the buttons. I don't need to spend $10 on a data cable to plug my, my stinking radio in to, to program the local repeaters. And then I bought a radio off the internet that came with European firmware. And I'm like, well, darn it. What am I going to do with this thing? The comp spacings is all wrong. I can't even tune in 146.520 because it, with the comp spacing, wants to t- tune in 5.25. And I <laughs> bit the bullet, downloaded Chirp, plugged it in, and within 30 seconds had the U.S. firmware. It, it's already wow. on there. It's just a bit that has to be checked and had a U.S. radio. And I'm like, well, geez, this is pretty cool. Okay, well, let me go get my repeaters and type them in. And then it says, well, you can just click here and download from repeater book. And I clicked and... <laughs> All the alpha tags were put in. Everything was put in. I clicked a button, watched it sync to the radio, and now I have a fully programmed radio literally within two minutes of plugging it in. And it works with everything from a Baofeng up to the most expensive Yezu radio or, or Kenwood or ICOM radio that you can buy, which is it's just amazing. It blows my mind. And it works with handhelds. It works with mobile radios. It works with anything. Chirp is a free and open source tool for programming those radios, and it's available on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. So essentially, no matter what your platform choice is, and really, pretty much, no matter what your radio choice is, you're probably going to be able to program it with Chirp. Correct, yeah. Tell me some of the cool things you've been able to do with decoding and and encoding radio data. Because the nice thing is about it is that this data is coming over as ones and zeros over the radio frequency. And typically, like like you mentioned earlier, you need a very expensive scanner. And it's not that the radio portion of that scanner is expensive. It's the software and the tooling and the hardware that's required to to process that digital data and turn it into actual audio and then render that back out. We can do that in a computer for much less money than we could do it in a, in a dedicated piece of hardware. You've done that. H- how has that worked out in, in practice? Sure. So specifically with FT8, I have found that because it's audio frequency shift keying, meaning that it's, it's a series of tones that the computer interprets as a digital signal, you can just hold the receiver up to the speaker and get successful decodes. And of course, you're not going to decode the weakest signals, but the strong ones are going to decode just fine. I have actually found that uh, I was experimenting with mobile communications with uh, uh, stuff that I would use on top of a mountain for uh, summits on the air. And I have found that I could hold... Uh, obviously not reliably, but I could actually make a QSO out of this. I could hold the speaker of the computer up to the microphone of the radio and get successful decodes, and vice versa. I could manually key the radio and hold the microphone of the radio up to the speaker of the computer and reliably make contacts. I, I've actually made a couple of QSOs simply without a, without a sound card interface, without any interface between the computer and the radio at all, besides me holding a push-to-talk button down and listening to what's coming out of the computer and the computer listening to what's coming out of the radio. That's fantastic. Alex, anything else that, that you've done with uh, with ham radio, specifically Linux on ham radio, that you'd like to share? Sure. Um, I exclusively run Linux when I do my ham radio, so all my logging, all of my DX spots, all of my propagation reporting, everything is done on – I run Ubuntu on my computer upstairs because it's an older computer. Um, so trusted QSL, TQSL, is what I use for – both logging and QSL confirmations. 
Um, I also do run Xlog for when I'm not running FT8. So if I make a CW contact or a voice contact, I will I will put that manually into Xlog. But with TQSL, it pulls straight down from your WSJTX logbook, your FT8 logbook that, that comes with that, and it automatically will upload it. And uh, if they also use TQSL, which most of them do, it will automatically confirm the contact if they've also confirmed it, which is really cool. Um, and then that that goes into their award system, worked all states, worked all continents, worked all zones, all that kind of stuff. You can actually get those awards straight through that, that program, TQSL. Uh, other programs I use, I do have GQRX running. GQRX is a SDR visualization program. So you can pull your SDR, tune it to a frequency and see the waterfall spectrum around it, which can be useful, not so much in HF because most of the SDRs don't go into the HF bands, but to see where somebody's talking, say on VHF, if you know somebody's calling CQ soda and they, they said their frequency, but you didn't quite get it, you can look at the spectrum on your SDR and find out where they are. Or even, you know, find a hidden station that's just calling CQ off of 5.2, you know, not on 5.2. You can find them and, and get to them there. So I do use that program as well. I actually pulled up my uh, my VNC viewer here simply so I could look at this kind of stuff and see what I have. There is a build of uh, Ubuntu that has ham radio programs preloaded. And I was originally running that. I'm actually just running stock uh, Ubuntu right now with my own... Uh, downloads from the ham radio repository but currently i have programs that i use chirp fl rig and fl digi i had used a little bit when i first started but now i use pretty much exclusive exclusively wsjtx uh gqrx qss tv which is a slow scan tv decoder i started that with um with a scanner or an sdr just listening to the international space station and they send down images about once a month and you can decode them and get a qsl card from the iss which i thought was absolutely the coolest thing in the world when I started doing it. Of course, WSJTX. And then there is a companion to WSJTX, which is the, the FT8, J, JSA, and all that mode uh, program called Grid Tracker, which I absolutely love. If you go to my QRZ page, KC0REL, just type me into QRZ and you'll find a picture of my shack. There is a view of that Grid Tracker. And what's cool about Grid Tracker, it's kind of an award tracking slash call tracking program where WSJTX, you have your waterfall and you have your calls window and it will color code calls that you're looking for or calls that you don't have or new countries or stuff like that. But the, the thing is that sometimes like it'll say somebody that I've worked on a different band is worked. And yes, I've worked them, but if I'm trying to get worked all states 20 meters and I've worked them on 40, I want to work them on 20 meters if that's what I'm working. Grid Tracker will pop that out and actually pop up on your screen and say, you need to contact this person. And then you just click on it in Grid Tracker and it'll actually interface with WSJTX and control the radio. This is so cool. This is absolutely amazing. This is the stuff that people always ask me about because they know that I'm a ham radio operator. So, that, so they expect that I do all this all with my spare time, but I don't have any spare time, so I don't. So this is this is really exciting to hear, man. I, I This is so cool. Um. Where can people find you if they want to if they want to if they want to have a conversation want to have a QSO with you? Um, where's the best place to find you? Sure, um, I operate almost exclusively on FT8. I do occasionally scroll through uh, SSB and CW. My CW speed is extremely slow. Think like two to three words a minute. I'm not, <laughs> I couldn't even pass a five word a minute test now, but I do do CW every once in a while. But 99% of the time, it's it's FT8. Um, it, 
I'm available through the chat room here. If you wanted to ask me questions about this, I can answer questions about my specific setup. And then uh, if you have an urgent pressing matter that you want Noah to get a hold of me, he knows my email address. Alex Archer, he is KC0REL, a ham radio operator and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. He is in the Matrix chat, that's what he's talking about, so you can join us in the ham shack. You can join that chat at geeklab, colon, or excuse me, linuxdelta.com and choose the ham shack. His name's Alex Archer. Thanks, Alex, for joining us on the program. You have an open invitation anytime, my friend. Well, thank you. Always up to talk uh, ham radios or any of the other multiple interests that I have. We appreciate it. We'll get you back uh, to, to, to cover those. And uh, it's it's great hanging out with nerds, and it's great building community with nerds. And Simon and Kenny, thanks so much for taking the time to be here and, and, and do this with us. It's It's been fun. I want to, uh, as we wind down the program, I kind of want to talk about what we're doing at Alta Speed and how that relates or benefits the community. So this week, um, as I said, we're, we're testing out a, a, a hosted matrix instance from uh, from the element folks and what we have what we've done is we've tried to revamp our workflow so that it takes into account the fact that we have this community that we want to support so for example when we did the email bridge we found a bridge an open source project that worked I mean the code was there it was complete but it was just a little outdated and so we forked that repo we you made the changes that we needed to make and we got the email bridge working at Alta speed and now that code is available on AltaSpeed's GitLab, and people can benefit from that, and people can take that, and they can use it. And when we finish the chat integration into the site so people can participate without having to create an account, that's something that all of the various communities are going to be able to, to use. And the idea here is very simple. We, from since 2009, have spent our time at AltaSpeed Technologies solving people's problems and serving people who pay us money. And since 2017, what I've set out to do with Ask Noah is solve people's problems in the community. It's just a different way to approach the same idea. And so going forward past 200, um, my goals for the show are to cont- is, is to utilize the network of experts that we have. I don't know the answer to every question. I don't know when people call in. I don't know everything there is to know about virtualization or C groups or Docker. But I know the people that do, and I see them at Linux conferences, and we talk at Linux conferences, and those people are available and want and are willing to come on the show. Steve Ovens is a fantastic community member, and I, I he he wrote an article for RedHat.com about cgroups. We'll have it linked for you in the show notes, and in it, he goes through, it's going to be a four-part series, and he explains, in part one, covers the fundamental concepts of C groups. In part two, he examines the CPU share in greater depth. In part three, it's entitled Doing C Groups the Hard Way and looks at C Groups administrations and tasks. Part four covers C groups as managed by System D. So if you're a system administrator and you're dealing with C groups, this is something you're gonna want to you're gonna want to read. And Steve has, has graciously agreed to come on the program and talk with us. And so I may not know everything there is to know about C groups, but I know somebody who does. And I want to share him and, and provide a platform for him to connect with the community. So the community can help uh, and, and benefit and learn from the problems that we have we have struggled with at AltaSpeed Technologies for the next time, for the next person that wants to either run that IT company, or maybe they're on the other side and they say, hey, we want to, we want to be, we want to do this in-house. At the end of the day, there are the companies are moving towards service-based companies. They want to pay a flat fee in a month 
and they want to have something delivered to them. And if you're an IT provider, then you have to figure out how to exist in that world. And we want to be a resource to help you do that. And if you're a person that wants to be self-sufficient and own your own technology, then we want to be the show to help you do that. You can get the latest by going to podcast.asknoahshow.com. Check out the show notes. Follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. We're back next week, 6 p.m. Tuesday. you enjoyed that show the link for it is in the is in the show notes you listener have thoughts and ideas and we would love to hear them on acker public radio just pick up a microphone and any recording device and submit a show that is of interest to you or other hackers take care and thank you for listening bye-bye You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.